Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Kia ora. Greetings from New Zealand. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land. Great, it works. Okay, so Kathy's told you how that research from this small university town in New Zealand is making um, waves, and one of the ways was this series, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but when you get asked to uh, give talks like this, you also get asked for a blurb. And I provided a blurb. I think it was rather dry and very factual. And then when I received the program, I saw that it had been given a bit of a flourish. <laughs> and I quote, and I liked it very much, I quote. It said, this is health. This is healthy communities. This is world leading. It turns out that you don't need a crystal ball to predict how life will turn out. What you need is an impeccably designed, painstakingly executed longitudinal study. And I liked this because it still remained factual. Um, but had I written it myself, it might have been a tad immodest as being part of this team. So thank you, um, Dennis or Kathy, whoever did that. Um, I'll be quoting you and I'll be using that. Um, so the Dunedin Multidisciplinary Health and Development Study, it's a mouthful, and that's why we just say the Dunedin Study, is indeed one of the most detailed studies of human health and um, development ever undertaken. And again, I quote from the program blurb, this world-renowned study followed the same group of people, over a thousand New Zealanders since their birth in 1972, delivering fascinating insights on medical and social development. Some examples of this are um, research that we've done. What matters more, your genes or your environment? And this, our study was the first study to provide evidence, empirical evidence in the behavioral sciences, looking at antisocial behavior, looking at depression, to show that it's not an either or question. Um, it showed that you had to be an interaction between your gene and the environment um, that made the difference. The other th one of the other things that the study has looked at is the effects of using cannabis early in the life course and persisting with cannabis use and its impact on psychosis, risk of psychosis, on periodontal disease, teeth, which is beyond tobacco use, and on IQ. Um, these, all of these are at least hour-long talks on itself. I'm just giving you a flavor of what the Deneen study has, has done, produced. Um, one of its main focuses uh, in the first decade, second decade or so, is how early can we tell, um, identify those group of individuals that will persist uh, throughout their lives in antisocial behaviour. And we were able to distinguish this group from the uh, group that starts antisocial behaviour in adolescence, that sort of period where we all do something naughty, and then they desist after a time. And this first group, the small group of anti um, kids who persisted with antisocial behaviour, about 5% of the males in our, in our study accounted for a huge percentage of all the antisocial behaviour, you know, the large majority of it. So um, that's another strand of research that the study has done. Um, this was the uh, series, uh, TV and Z in New Zealand, which is loosely equivalent of ABC here, uh, commissioned a four-part documentary on the research project. Um, 
actually, I think it's probably not correct to say they commissioned it, but they certainly um, uh, were part of this. And um, in the blurb it says, an inspirational documentary on the study Predict My Future was aired on SBS in 2016 and has been sold for worldwide distribution, which it has, and it's received a lot of interest from around the world, and it's one way of getting the message across, because there's no point in doing research on um, human health and development if you don't let the stakeholders know. Um, it's no use just getting into dry academic journals and CVs, so it's important to be out there um, and letting everybody know, which is why I was thrilled to get this invitation, we as a study. Um, the director couldn't come, but uh, I came instead, so that a wide audience gets to find out about the study. So today, to, today's talk is uh, going to focus on one aspect of the study that uh, looked at self-control. Um, and as I talk about this, uh, I want you to remember Amanda's talk um, yesterday morning. She talked about mindfulness. And if you think of mindfulness as a way of uh, uh, increasing self-control, I think that fits in quite nicely. I'm not sure that whether that was by design, um, but there seems to be this theme running through the conference. Um, so I'm going to uh, talk about self-control, childhood self-control and lifelong implications in the areas of health, wealth and public safety. So um, I'll go through what is self-control, I'll talk about the Dunedin study, I'll talk about the adult outcomes, the mistakes we make in adolescence and how, what impact that has, the cost to society and, and the implications of this. So what is self-control? I think we all know intuitively what self-control is, you know, thinking before you, you speak um, or act. So not giving in to that visceral reaction, resisting temptation, not having that you know, extra biscuit or, in my case, another glass of wine or uh, <laughs> um, not being impulsive, um, having a more considered responses to things, resisting inappropriate, hurtful, tit-for-tat type remarks, um, lashing out, uh, not jumping to conclusions un unless you've heard everything. It comes in very self-evident forms. It's quite intuitive. We all understand the concept of self-control. And it is by no means a new construct. Um, most religions have this as part of their beliefs and practices. Forgo the pleasure now, for you'll be rewarded richly later. Um, other professions have been studying it as well. Many disciplines, personality psychologists think of it as um, delayed gratification. Uh, child psychologists talk about, sorry, child touch psychologists talk about delayed gratification. Personality psychologists talk about it as a temperament tray. Uh, management science will talk about willpower and self-discipline. Neuroscience looks at the parts of the brain that light up when self-control is being measured. So it's, it's a widely studied uh, concept. But why study self-control? Um, in the 60s in the US, there was, many of you would know this, there was a program called Head Start, and it was aimed to improve IQ, but it didn't really succeed in doing that. However, some 15 or 20 years later, when they looked at the uh, children involved in this program, they found that the kids were doing much better than expected. For example, more of them had stayed on at school. Less of them had unplanned pregnancies than expected. So um, James Heckman, who's a Nobel uh, Prize winning economist, 
written an article in Science magazine and wondered whether it was due to self-control, that while trying to improve their IQ, they learned other skills. So um, we, in the researchers in the Dunedin study, realised that they could actually answer that because the study had information, lifelong information, on a thousand-odd participants and they could answer the question. Okay, the other thing is, is self-control more necessary now than ever before? Because if you think about it, we're swamped with opportunities to do the wrong thing. We have 24-hour fast food places. A lot of us sit in front of our computers and uh, don't get, you know, all day and don't get a chance to exercise, or at least that's my excuse. Um, we're tempted to buy things now and use up our money instead of saving for old age, and we all know that most of us are going to live a lot longer. Um, so in many ways, self-control is more important now than ever before. Um, now I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the Dunedin study and why uh, research from this study has such an impact. As I said earlier, it's a study that's arguably the most uh, detailed study of human health and development in the world. And the study has inquired a great depth and breadth of uh, information that allows us to study complex human beings. And by depth, I mean that we invite all the study members back to the research unit where we can actually measure a number of things. So it's not just going to their homes or ringing them up and asking questions. So we measure their fitness level, for example. We measure their lung function, their blood pressure, etc. And I've got some slides to show you that. And by breadth, I mean a wide-ranging selection of assessments that's conducted. And um, some of the things that we look at are mental health, cardiovascular, respiratory health, sexual and reproductive health, um, intimate par uh, partner relationships, uh, uh, personality, long-term consequences of um, child abuse. We do a number of blood-based studies, gene studies, etc. So it's a very, that's where the multidisciplinary bit comes from. It's a general population sample. It's not a selected group. So it's everybody born in Dunedin in a 12-month period from all walks of life. And that makes it a representative sample. Um, this next slide is, uh, is busy, but uh, what it tells you are the assessments. So on the left-hand side are all the assessments that were conducted. There was birth and the longitudinal study started at age three. As you can see, in the early years, they were um, seen quite regularly because development happens fast and then spread out a little bit longer. The, the, we are currently seeing them and they're 45 years old and there's a seven-year difference um, between the last assessment and this assessment. And, and on the right-hand side, what you see is the retention rate and that's something that's also very important. Um, after almost four decades at age 38, we saw 95% of all those eligible um, to be part of the study that is still alive, which really is, um, and I'm going to be immodest now, which really is a world record by some 20, 30, 40%, I'm not sure what, but it is, it is astounding. And so we're seeing them again at 45, no pressure to not make that stats dip, um, and that's part of my job. Um, so, so, you know, it gives us confidence in our findings because the people you, you lose are the people you end up wanting to study. It, they are the people that are in and out of institutions. They are the people with mental health problems. They're fr running from the law. And they're the people you're most interested in. So 
keeping the whole sample virtually intact gives us confidence in our research findings. Um, not everybody still lives in Dunedin. Uh, Kiwis travel a lot and move a lot. Uh, only about a third live there. Um, and uh, about 25% live overseas of that 17% live here in Australia. Um, in New Zealand, it's called the West Island. Uh, <laughs> um, and they all get brought back to, um, to the research unit to conduct assessments. So um, they give us their time. They don't, we pay for all the expenses to come back, so that makes our research grants quite uh, expensive. Uh, but so far, so good, fingers crossed. Um, okay, so... Back to self-control. A little bit about the study, and I'd be happy to answer any questions either at the end of the talk or during afternoon tea if I, if I take too long giving this talk. Um, measuring self-control. One of the things that uh, we did was to make sure that we measured self-control well. And so we used a composite measure, and we used measurement over time, over childhood. Um, we looked at uh, the information we had uh, on our study members over four ages, three, five, seven... No, five, three, five, seven, nine, and 11 years. We looked at multiple uh, reporters, so either there were observations by the staff in the clinic or what the parents told us by way of questionnaires or interviews, uh, what the teachers told us at, at uh, five, seven, nine, and 11, and then when the children were old enough at age 11, what they told us themselves. So this is a very comprehensive, robust comp um, measure of self-control in childhood. So, um, if you remember when I uh, said what um, self-control is about, quite specifically in, um, in our data when we looked through, what we found are these characteristics which define self-control. So, a child who lacks in self-control is impulsive, acts without thinking. They can't wait for his or her turn and they want to do it now. They have very low frustration tolerance, gets frustrated easily, wants to give up, dislikes putting in any effort, just wants it to all happen easily. Poor attention span, easily distracted, not being able to persist, not understanding what the point of the task was if it takes too long, and constantly requiring attention and motivation from an adult. And I'm sure if we all thought about it, we could identify such a, such a you know, either a child or perhaps even an adult. Um, so one of the things we looked at, so remember this is in childhood, ages 3 to 11. Now we fast forward to uh, this, the, this research was carried out with the information we had collected at age 32. So three decades later, um, one, one of the things we looked at were, um, where did that come from? Health measures. And we looked at a number of health measures. Um, uh, things like, so this is, this is what happens when they come into the research unit, things like cardiorespiratory fitness, um, we measure height and weight to get their BMI, we take uh, more cardiovascular measures, this is the endothelial function, we take blood pressure measures, um, this is, these are two of our interviewers at age 38, a nurse and another interviewer, we, t we measure their lung function using um, what we call a body box. Um, we look at their teeth. Uh, dentist, Professor Murray Thompson, comes along and looks at their teeth and, and gets information about their teeth. And from the blood that they um, 
uh, give us. We do a number of inflammation markers, cholesterol, SD, and look at SDIs and things like that. So we actually have real measures rather than just asking them questions about their health. Within our study population, we found out, so when we look at the health out outcomes, we found out that 17% had three or more uh, problems with obesity, with cardiorespiratory fitness, with blood pressure, with cholesterol. About 20% had teeth problems, about 18% had STIs, uh, high levels of inflammation, 20% had respiratory problems, about 17%. So this was our composite measure of health. Again, I, I note the importance of having um, a comprehensive measure rather than one single measure. Now, when we looked at the self-control groups, what we did was invite, um, divide them into five groups, the whole study population into five groups, from the lowest levels of self-control to the highest level of self-control. And what this slide shows you is, on the left-hand side, it's the lowest level, and this is looking at the health measures. So if you had very low levels of self-control, you had the highest rate of poor health. And then if you go to the next group, number two, as you improved in your levels of self-control, um, even though it's not that great, it's still the second lowest, you still improved in your levels of health and so forth until you get to the highest level of self-control where you have the lowest level of um, health problems. And what's important here, and I'm going to show you more results that basically mirror that, what's important here is that we're not talking about extreme groups. We're not just talking about the very low self-control and the rest or the very low self-control and uh, the highest group. We're talking about what we call a gradient response. Each, each level makes a difference to your outcome in life, which, as I'll explain, is quite heartening. Um, we do interview sessions where we ask them questions about their mental health and relationships and things like that. Um, and we also, though, send out um, questionnaires with their permission to people who know them well so we can ask them the same questions and they get corroborated by what they've told us. Um, so in this case, um, we're looking at substance abuse problems and the rates in our study, about 19% had tobacco dependence. This is based on the DSM the, um, criteria, but 18% had alcohol dependence, 5% cannabis, 3% were dependent on harder drugs. Um, and then we also asked the informants about these questions. And what we find is the same picture emerges. The People with low self-control, and uh, this is what they told us themselves in red, what the study participants told us, the people with low self-control had the highest rates of substance dependence. And, uh, and then you see it dipped down. The second lowest had slightly less problems with substance dependence, and again going to the high group who had the least problems with substance dependence. And all of that is nicely corroborated by their informants, the people who knew them well. Uh, so we've looked at health and we've looked at substance use and then we also looked at financial success, measures of various measures of financial success. Um, the first thing we looked at income um, in New Zealand dollars and occupational prestige based on you know what they told us that they were doing. And um, the, the light blue line is income. And you can see how, how striking it is. So the lowest level of self-control had the lowest um, income. And then it goes up quite high, even at the second group, up to the highest group, with highest level of control, 
the best level of income. And the same with um, socioeconomic status, which is partly measured by the occupation they had. Um, so you, you see the pattern in all of this. And it, in a way, it, um, when these findings emerged, you started thinking, this can't be real, because in research you don't often get something so clear, so striking over so many different measures. Um, but it, you know, it was real. We also then looked at, um, oh, this is another, sorry, another um, aspect of financial planfulness. So it's about planning for your future, you know, is, and we asked some questions like, is saving for your future important to you? Do you save money by putting it away and not touching it? We asked them about home ownership and investments and whether or not they have retirement plans. And we looked at all of that and looked at the five groups of uh, self-control. And if you look at the low self-control, their financial plan, plan, planfulness is really, really poor. And again, the same gradient response, um, it, the higher you get on the self-control group, uh, the better it becomes as you go along with financial planfulness. Um, and then financial struggles. So we looked at three aspects of um, finances, and we looked at struggles. The struggles. Um, if you have problems rent, you know, meeting the cost of rent, um, your bills, repairs to your house or car, if you suddenly had them, um, you find yourself living from paycheck to paycheck. These are all the questions we've asked. If you got turned down by a credit card, if you got declared bankrupt, had to sell your belongings to a pawnbroker to make some money, all of this is what we looked at to, to define financial struggles. And we then used um, what they told us, which is in green, but also then looked at what their informants told us. Because sometimes it's hard to tell another person how, how hard it is for you financially. Um, and you find that their informants actually thought they were struggling a lot more than they said they were struggling. Um, and so that's the, the mauve line. Is that mauve or purple? But anyway, that's the mauve line. And then the green line is what the study members told us themselves. And again, those in the low self-control group, and remember, this was measured in childhood, and we're looking at it three decades later. We were able to predict um, uh, how much they uh, struggled financially, and they had the highest rate of financial struggles. Okay. Uh, we looked at crime. Uh, we have information using the Australian and New Zealand um, uh, database on convictions uh, up to age 18. Uh, sorry, from age 18 to adulthood. Um, I'm talking too fast and I've gone... I've gone way ahead of my notes. <laughs> um, there we go. So about three-quarters of us... That, um, no, that's wrong. So, again, when we look at convictions, the same pattern appears. Um, it's almost getting boring. You know, somebody is just putting up the same slide. But the same pattern appears in this wide range of um, outcomes in adulthood. And low self-control, you've got the most level of, um, uh, of convictions. And high self-control, the least number of convictions. Okay. In the study, we also measured how our study members' parents. So when they had their first child at age three, 
uh, someone went out to their homes and uh, videotaped their interaction with the child on a standardised parenting measure. And then these were sent to someone who didn't know anything about the study member, their child, or any of the background information and rated blind by them, so rated on measures of parenting. Um, the first thing we looked at is whether they were single parents or, um, or whether whether they were single parents. And again, when you look at self-control, the low group were most likely to be single parents and rearing their child by themselves compared to the high self-control group or compared to, um, to any of the other groups. Uh, we also looked at the type of parenting that this. So remember now, this is looking at the next generation of people and the impact their, their childhood self-control had not only on themselves, but imparting onto the next generation. Low, um, uh, the study participants with low levels of self-control were less warm, less sensitive, less stimulating parents with their children. They had difficulty parenting. And so, of course, what does that mean? They, their child will, ha will not be growing up in a warm, nurturing, loving household. And that would matter in the child's life as the child grows up. Right, so um, the beauty of the study like this is that you need to say, well, could it have been due to a number of other things? And could it be due to socioeconomic status? Um, surely that might make a difference. Well, it does make a difference in that you have uh, more of the low self-control group in the low socioeconomic status group. However, if you control for that, and you are able to do that statistically, if you control for that, the pattern still remains. So that did not explain the association from childhood to adulthood um, outcomes. It wasn't their socioeconomic status. We then also looked at IQ. Um, could it be people with low IQ versus high IQ? Again, when you controlled for that, um, and we were able to do so because we had IQ measures from childhood, when you control for that, that didn't make a difference as well. Um, regardless of IQ, if you were in the low self-control group, you still had the same outcomes later in life. So IQ did not explain it. Gender, you'd expect, um, sorry for the males in the group, more boys to be in the low self-control group with the, um, hyperactivity, etc. But again, that did not make a difference. It didn't matter whether you were a boy or a girl. If you were in a lower self-control group, your patterns remained the same. So we were able to control for all of these alternative explanations. Um, ADHD. There's a group of people in the study that have been diagnosed with ADHD. So what we did was we thought that could be driving it. That could be driving the results. So we took out the whole group of people and ran the analysis again, and it all remained the same. So that did not explain it. So as much as we could in this study, as comprehensively as we could, we looked at all the alternative explanations, and that ruled out all the associate, uh, reasons for association. I'm just going to have a drink of water. Okay, so you look at adolescence. Now, could it be that it's the adolescent period that's driving it? So you've got um, kids with poor self-control, but of course, when we all get to adolescence, we do a number of things. It's the risky behaviour period. And could that be driving the adult outcomes? And uh, so what we did was... Um, 
these three slides, and you'll see the pattern there again. Basically, children with so low self-control made more mistakes during their teenage years. They were smoking, more of them were smoking by age 15, more of them had dropped out of school, more of them had unplanned pregnancy. So these low self-control kids were more likely to be ensnared in difficulties during um, teenage years, and more likely, therefore, as adults, to have poor health, less wealth, be unskilled parents, and have a cr criminal conviction. But then we looked at, we thought, well, let's compare this group with the ones that had um, no problems during adolescence. That is, they didn't smoke, they didn't drop out of school, and they didn't have an um, unplanned pregnancy and things like that. And we call this the utopian sample. So the, the, the sort of kids that didn't do any of these, uh, didn't engage in any of these problems or have any of these problems. And what we did was compare this sample to the kids that did have these problems. And so the first slides... Um, the green slide is um, the full gradient, and the yellow slide is the kids, uh, the utopian kids. And what you see there is again the same pattern. So, um, although adolescent problems did increase your difficulties in adulthood, even if you didn't have problems in adolescence and you were in the low self-control group, you still had a significant problem in adulthood. So adolescence didn't explain the association. It did make it worse, but it wasn't the reason for adult association. Um, and that's looking at health problems. This is looking at income, again, at 32. And then this is looking at adult crime. Now we looked at um, economic measures, and this is something that's important to governments everywhere, is the money that it costs, um, behaviour problems. And so in the study, we found that more than half of the study members had received a benefit at some point in their lives. And when we looked at the self-control measure, they didn't really predict who went on a benefit. It kind of weakly did, um, which means that a range of people needed help at some point. That makes sense with the economic crisis that's been around in New Zealand and in the world in recent times. So people needed help. Um, but what this next slide shows is that those with the poorest self-control stayed on the benefits for much, much longer than those with high self-control. Um, the the uh, low self-control group were on benefit for an average of about six years compared to 18 months for the high self-control group. So a massive difference, and in terms of cost to a government, huge difference. And then we wanted to know, because and this comes up often in talks, but are these people happy? That's high self-control group. I mean, are they just uptight individuals that you know, really don't have any joy in their life? Um, and we asked questions about happiness in the study. We asked lots of positive questions. It se seems like we're you know, dwelling on the negative, but we asked them questions about satisfaction with life and relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yes, indeed, they are very happy. So, again, the gradient shows the low self-control group are not as happy as the ones in the higher levels of uh, self-control. Even the second lowest are a little bit happier than the lowest group. And that makes sense. They have the things that they need. Um, so the ones in the highest self-control, 90% of them said they were very happy. How are we going for time, Cathy? Oh, good. Got plenty of time. Okay, so what are the implications of this? Um, basically, a lot of um, 
innovative policies that need to put self-control in center stage. You can call it self-regulation, you can call it all kinds of things. And I, I reflected on Amanda's talk, mindfulness is one way of increasing um, self-control. And it will significantly reduce the cost to the taxpayer and government if um, in lots of areas, healthcare delivery, crime control, social welfare in education, as I've just shown you, but also improve the outcome of future generations. Um, remember, that those with self-control had unplanned babies. They were not parenting them well. The babies were growing up in single households and the parents were lacking skills in, in being good parents. Um, they were substance dependent, poor health. So all of these things, if you improve childhood self-control, it makes a difference. There are two windows of opportunity, um, childhood and adolescence, but really I'd add a third any time, you know, adulthood as well. So you can start in childhood. It's important to intervene early, um, but you can still carry on doing this in adolescence, in schools, in high schools, etc. Um, and when, I, when I'm not entirely sure where all the uh, people you come from in terms of the work you do, but I know you do community-based work, and I'm sure that you in your work are able to identify um, families, children that need this sort of assistance, and it's never too early to start. Um, I mentioned uh, um, James Heckman, the Nobel Prize laureate. He had come up in this, with this graph, and what it shows is that childhood, the optimum um, time for intervening is childhood. So if you, if you just draw a line, I'm not quite sure what's happened to my line, but if you draw your line there, you'll see that you get the majority of return. And so he's, he's in economics, um, and he talks about money and retur return for investment. You get most investment if you start early in the childhood, but you still get return later in life. And although you're talking about economic measures, everything that I've talked about reflects families, reflects the struggles in families. So it can be measured that way, but we're talking about families and people. Um, so the question is, do you target uh, just the people with low self-control or do you make it a universal thing? And uh, our answer to that is, why stigmatize a small group? Because what we've shown is everybody can improve their levels of self-control and it'll make an impact in their life. So if you go from the second lowest group to the third, to the middle group, there'll be an improvement in your life. Um, it's a heartening message. I've given this talk to uh, early childhood teachers and principals, and it's a very heartening message for them. That is that they don't have to move um, or, or think that, you know, do what they think might be impossible, move someone from the very low self-control group to the highest self-control group. Everything they do to just make that slight increase, and as it keeps going, will make a difference in life. Um, so you, a universal approach in schools, in early childhood centres, um, everywhere, in employment, ourselves in our lives, it all makes a difference. Um, we're not an intervention study, so I don't have um, a lot of information about programs, but there are some researchers, fantastic research, researchers out there, and this is stemmed from this body of research, developing innovative ways to improve self-control. But if you think about it, it's, you know, it has always been done in, in uh, uh, schools and early childhood centres, you know, making a person wait their turn, etc. All of that, Simon says, all of that is a way of self-control. Um, 
Mindfulness, as I said, you know, is a great way of improving your self-control. Um, and as adults, making yourself go and do some exercise, even if you don't feel like it, it's too cold and you know, it's too, too dark or when winter comes. Again, that will improve your life. So that, that part is about self-control. And as I said, I'm happy to take uh, questions later on or if, if there's not sufficient time in, during afternoon tea. I'm going to move, uh, briefly go on to another study that we did, um, which again shows the implications of intervening, recognising um, vulnerability early in the life course and then intervening and, and what difference that will make. Uh, this is about... Ah, sorry, back to self-control. It was picked up by Sesame Street and used in their program. And so they had this show where, um, who's the blue guy? Yes, so doing the savings thing. So having jars, saving one for now and one for later. So this self-control thing was picked up by Sesame Street and used in their program. Okay, I'm going to talk about a study that we um, have called the Pareto principal study. Uh, that's not its official title, by the way. <laughs> um, but basically we found that in childhood we can forecast a small segment of the population who will end up using a large amount of the resources um, and services. And, and this is in, follows the Pareto principle. A certain Mr. Pareto in Italy over 100 years ago noted that 80% of effects came from 20% of sources. And what he was talking about was um, land ownership. So 80% of the land then was owned by 20% of the families. And this is quite true in a number of things. I think in software you, you find that 80% of the problems comes from 20% of you know, problem, uh, software malfunction and so forth. So... In the Dunedin study, we were able to look at this, largely because we were able to access the, the study participants' administrative database that the government holds. Um, New Zealand has a very good administrative database, uh, looking at hospital admissions, looking at pharmaceutical, uh, uh, pharmaceutical um, uh, prescriptions and things that they've had, looking at services that they've used. So we were able to access that and use that in this study. And what we found is that, yes, indeed, 20% of our study members had accounted for 80% of the use in a lot of these services, 22% really, to be precise. And so 22% of... Sorry, that's in the wrong order. Um, I'll read this out because the slide is probably not as clear to the big group. But 22% um, were the people that... of hospital admissions, 66% of welfare admissions. Now, I know these are a lot of numbers, but the point here is that these are high numbers. 77% were fatherless children. 78% um, of them had filled the prescriptions that all the cohorts, so accounted for 78%. 80% of all the convictions were accounted for by this 20%. And what were the risk factors for this 20%? Um, and again, in this study, like in the self-control study, we looked at um, a range of things. 
and over a, uh, the whole childhood period, so five, seven, nine, eleven, all of those periods. So multi-wave, multi-measurement is, is how we put it. Um, the risk factors were like low socioeconomic status, maltreatment in childhood, they were badly treated, low IQ and low self-control, also factors in this. But when you, when you think about this, you think, well, most people working in the, in <clears throat> the helping profession kind of know this already. Um, you see the same families getting services from a range of uh, different departments. So it's something that you do know. It's been proven um, in this study. But what use is it to know that and not be able to do anything about it? And how are you going to identify these people? And it's not useful, for example, for government um, to think, well, it's going to take four waves and we're going to be able you know, measure them all throughout childhood to find out. So we looked at how, um, w what information we had in the study database and, how, and whether or not this 22% of people can be identified. When they were three years old, they had received a, um, a neurological assessment, um, pediatric, uh, standard, brief standard pediatric assessment that included a number of things like language skills, so ability to express and to understand language, fine motor skills and being able to you know, use a, a pencil and scissors, and we're talking about age three, um, self-control, IQ, etc. 45-minute pediatric assessment. When we looked at that, we were able to see that that could predict who went into which of these groups, the 20% versus the rest um, of this. And the prediction, uh, it's really hard to predict human behaviour over time. A lot of the predictions have, you know, very weak effects, as we call it in research. But the prediction was good for 80% of the time. So if you take you and me, uh, we could predict 80%, with 80% certainty which one of us would fall into that group. So that's an amazing prediction. Um, what are the implications of this? Well, one, if you see vulnerable families, it's important to do something about it. Um, the people, when this research came out, people talked about, well, doesn't that stigmatise this group of people? But another way of looking at it is that these are vulnerable people who need help um, rather than stigmatising this group. And it's almost unethical not to identify them in order so that you can help them. Because if you don't identify them, you're not helping them, and it has enormous costs, as you can see, um, to, to society. You're not only helping them, you're helping everybody else because if money's not spent um, uh, later in life with these people, it can be spent in other things, improving society in lots of other ways. So both of these studies have shown how strongly childhood risk factors are related to adult ad outcomes and there are other work in the study that showed the same thing. Early intervention is the key. And I'll finish by a final quote from that great flourished blurb. We are living in a world that demands evidence for our interventions. Well, here it is. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au